welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer, episode number 107 for Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. Two aspects of video gaming that I love, besides video gaming itself, of course, are the history of it. There's just such a wealth of information. So many books have been written. And finally, we're at a point where museums are starting to recognize the cultural and historical significance of video games. And also retail. I love physical stores. I have worked at Walden Books, Blockbuster, I guess that's not a great record then. And software, <laughs> et cetera, which is now a GameStop. Those two aspects are things that I have a lot of experience with, but not nearly as much and not nearly as insightfully experienced and professionally as today's guest, who I'm very excited to speak with, the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation and the co-owner of Pink Gorilla Games in Seattle, Washington in the United States, Kelsey Lewin. Hello, Kelsey. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's such a pleasure to chat with you. I have had communications with your colleague, Frank, the founder of the Video Game History Foundation. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten to Pink Gorilla Games, although I'm hoping to change that sometime. We have so much to chat about today. Let's talk first about the Video Game History Foundation. For those of our listeners who are not familiar with it, what is the VGHF? Yeah, so uh, our mission statement for the, the quick and dirty is that we're a nonprofit dedicated to preserving, celebrating, and teaching the history of video games. And what that means, really, um, because, you know, mission statements are a little vague sometimes, is that uh, there's a whole heck of a lot of video game history that has not been recorded, that has not been really talked about much, um, that we're still kind of getting the industry itself on board and making sure we're preserving so that, you know, future generations have access to it and all of that. And we really want to see a world where video game history is a thing that's easily accessible, just like, you know, just like you can pretty easily go to a hundred different museums about music history or read books about music history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're not quite there yet with video games, but we are hoping to uh, to change that. Is the Video Game History Foundation a physical location that people can visit? Not so much that people can visit, although we do host researchers. Um, we have an office and an archive. It's not a huge space, unfortunately. So there's not a whole lot of like, you know, it's not a museum. It's not something you can come in and just kind of like tour and point at things, unfortunately. Um, but we are instead a, a research archive that, you know, if you are not in not COVID times, uh, if you're a researcher that wants to come visit and study some of the stuff in our collections, then uh, you can get in touch with us. And do I understand that your collection is primarily on the digital side as opposed to physical artifacts? That's not entirely true. So the, the office itself and the archive itself um, is tons and tons of physical stuff. We have uh, just about 10,000. Actually, I guess we probably have more than 10,000, although they don't all fit in the uh, in the library. About 10,000 uh, magazines from all over. Mostly, It's mostly English language stuff for right now, although we do have a pretty decent selection of Famitsu and some other Japanese uh, magazines, a couple Korean ones and stuff. But um, huge selection of... Uh, magazines, because we think that magazines do an incredible job of providing context and stuff if you're researching a game, uh, a lot to learn from what was going on in the world and, you know, what were people thinking about at, when you're researching just about anything for video game history. Um, they're good time capsules. 
And uh, we have, you know, several developer collections, which can include digital assets, but also things like, um, you know, concept art and correspondence between different people and, you know, technical notes and all kinds of paperwork and and fun stuff like that. So um, we do have a very large physical archive. Uh, We are working to digitize a lot of stuff, although that's a thing that takes a whole heck of a lot of time and money. And then uh, I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but we have gone and helped some other places like Game Informer magazine um, digitize a lot of the stuff that they've been collecting throughout the years. Gotcha. I think what I must have been thinking of when I was considering your archive to be digital is the fact that you probably don't have a lot of actual video games and systems in the collection. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, that's completely correct. We actually don't focus on collecting retail video games whatsoever. I mean, we happen to have a handful, but it's uh, it's not something that we focus on because thankfully, I mean, other other institutions kind of have that covered, even collectors. I mean, if if a researcher needs access to a physical retail game, it's really not that hard to find information on that, actually. And it's the other stuff that we think is actually pretty hard to uh, to study. Gotcha. Is that one of the angles that distinguishes the Video Game History Foundation from places like the National Video Game Museum in Texas or the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, we're actually not very much like the National Video Game Museum at all, just because, um, at least as of right now, they don't have a, a research angle. I know that's something that they're trying to uh, to establish is to have a library at some point. Um, but they're they're purely a museum at this point, which is great. It's an awesome way. I mean, I've, I've been a couple times and it's an excellent way to educate people on some of the the history of video games. Uh, the Strong in Rochester does have a research library. They do have an archive. Um, so we do collect some of the same things for sure, but the Strong Museum of Play is, as its name suggests, it's all of play, you know, lots of toys and games and that sort of thing. And uh, we are 100% video game dedicated. Yeah, I've, I've been to the Strong several times. Their International Center for the History of Electronic Gaming is amazing. I haven't been there as a researcher, but I can imagine. Uh, I've talked to people like Jimmy Maher, who has gone there to write articles about the history of gaming as just such an exhaustive resource. And I love your comment about magazines as well, being this snapshot of time that lets you see what was important, what people were talking about back then. You mentioned Game Informer, which I'm a subscriber to and which is published by GameStop. You had quite the project there a few years ago because they have been basically hoarding all this information in their own archives and they invited you in to digitize a lot of that. It's great that they were willing to collaborate with you on that project because, as you said, digitizing takes a lot of time and money. Yeah, it it does. And um, it's funny that you used the word archive because when we arrived, it was a room that they had been throwing (laughs) everything into for the last, uh, you know, since like 1992 or something. So it was, I mean, just floor to ceiling stuff. Like it wasn't even boxes necessarily. It was just stuff in a room. A lot of the initial part was just kind of sorting things out, um, taking inventory of what it all was that we had to work with. I think we identified 17 different media types that we had to work with. I mean, things like DAT tapes and mini discs and slides and transparencies and just all kinds of, you know, in addition to the obvious things like paper and uh, CDRs and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's it's a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, they were... They wanted the the former editor in chief Andy McNamara was very um, you know 
thought it was very important that since they were the only magazine that was kind of uh, both still standing and had been keeping all of this stuff for a long time, that we sort of preserved this snapshot of uh, media history and video games. And what's really cool about Game Informer, because they saved everything that they were sent, or you know, just about everything that they were sent um, until it all started just being like email attachments or digital codes or whatever, um, we have... I mean, they have the most complete snapshot of what the video game press was like for like a good 20 year period. And I mean, that's incredibly valuable information. That's not just the magazine itself, but it's everything that went into making the magazine, including a bunch of stuff that they probably never published at all. I mean, when you look at something like a press release, you can get not just some information about the game that you might already know, but you get also like, what was the company trying to do with this game? What were they, what did they think the selling points were? What did they think that other people should notice and see about this game? And, um, you know, I mean, maybe that's casually not that interesting, but if you're trying to uh, really dive deep and study a single game or a single genre or company or anything like that, you can learn a lot from that kind of thing. I love what you pointed out in one of your other podcast interviews, which is that companies send out a lot of press information that never gets used by the magazines. Because if you send somebody 100 screenshots, they're going to use one or two. Right. I was recently cleaning my house and I found a binder of three and a half inch floppy disks that Sony distributed at E398. Wow. Like it took like half a dozen floppy disks to distribute all the screenshots. And so I sent those to the Strong Museum of Play. I hope they're available somewhere. But yeah, I mean, there's just so much information that the public never gets to see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, especially when you deal with, um, you know, not even just like your favorite games or whatever, but it can also be something like an unreleased game and maybe just no one ever really covered it or there was one screenshot and a little blurb and that was it. But it turns out that they actually sent quite a bunch of stuff about it. I mean, that's this is how we learn about the things that never existed. Now, Game Informer, of course, had this room that not just anybody could walk into. And now a lot of that material is digital. Who has access to the digital versions now or who will? So Game Informer still has access to all of it digitally. Um, we gave them a complete copy of everything we had uh, had digitized. And um, just to be clear, we didn't get through everything because <laughs> it was a team of six of us for five weeks straight working every single day. And usually Frank and I would leave and just kind of like take some paper with us back to the hotel and continue working. <laughs> but, um, it, we didn't get through all of it. We got through a lot of it. And, you know, unfortunately, GameStop uh, or Game Informer owns all of that right now. And so there's, it's not as easy as uh, just flipping a switch and letting everybody in the world have access to it. Um, the goal for us at the Video Game History Foundation, 100% of the time, is always more access to more people. That is always what we're working towards. And so that's what we would like to see for this collection and what we're working on. But at the moment, I don't have any exciting news to share about accessibility for that yet. Now, here's sort of an esoteric question that I hadn't thought of before. But when you are dealing with such a wealth of information coming from so many different media, as you described, how do you organize it? Are you just throwing it into folders? Are you tagging it? Is there some sort of a digital asset management program? Yeah. So for right now, especially with the Game Informer project, we just had to work as fast as we can. So we, we couldn't do um, 
real meta tagging or anything like that. We just had to, you know, like I said, we had five weeks and we didn't even get through everything in five weeks. So we were like, in order to, you know, that part can be done later. The the tagging and all of that can be done later. Um, what needs to happen is the first pass is the digitization. We have identified a management system for all of that. We are, you know, we're a hundred percent unpaid volunteer run organization right now. So as you can imagine, we're not exactly uh, not exactly rolling in funding yet, but we have identified the place that it is going to go uh, live and get tagged and all of that stuff eventually. Very cool. So in addition to magazines, the Video Game History Foundation has recently focused on source code with the Video Game Source Project, which was announced just last month in October of 2020. For those who again, are not familiar, what would you describe as source code or source? Yeah, so, um, and we specifically left out the code part of source code uh, because I want to try to make it as broad as possible. Um, Video game source is all of the pieces you need to actually assemble the final game. Um, It's kind of like the the workstation where there everything is kind of you know you've got the art assets over here and you've got maybe the script over here um, and all of these things exist in one repository um, in theory and uh, you have all of the pieces that go into the final game but what makes the source uh, so potentially interesting is that not only do you have all of the final pieces of the game, but you often have a lot of the not final or scrapped or commented out pieces of the game. So you have a better, you know, a, a good archive of uh, of video game source. Um, a good source repository can really help show a historian kind of, um, you know, some of the decisions that maybe went into making this game, it can kind of illuminate uh, the the course of the game, you know, just kind of what went on when they were building it, what changed, maybe what, um, you know, what got improved, what got cut. So you can learn a lot. And it's, it's very different every time. I mean, sometimes you'll have a bunch of things in there that are complete nonsense and have nothing to do with the game. And they were just kind of, you know, they just kind of existed on this workstation and got zipped up and <laughs> and turned into the game and you just you don't see it anywhere in the final game. So that's it kind of a long-winded explanation, but it's really it's the it's the DNA that makes up a video game. And if you have access to it, not only can you learn a lot about the game itself, but you can even theoretically completely recreate the game from scratch. Thank you. And I that's an important distinction that I had not consciously made about the omission of the word code because you're right. Just like how you can make a video game without being a programmer because there are so many other roles like art designer, narrative creator, etc. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into the game as you mentioned. Right. You announced this project, the Video Game Source Project. Presumably this was also material that the Video Game History Foundation was receptive to beforehand. So what is new about this formal establishment of a project? You're right. I mean, it is something that we've had some of in the past, but I think it's something that really just needed a big kind of spotlight on it. I think a lot of people can understand why like a prototype game or whatever might be valuable, but not a lot of people understand um, or are even conscious of the idea of source code. And so especially there you know, been a lot of developers we've spoken to where they're like, oh yeah, I might have a hard drive somewhere. People want that. People want to look at that. And so it really is just something we want to bring attention to that uh, not only should we be preserving games themselves, but we should be 
trying to preserve sort of the archive of each game, you know, the the things that went into each game. And it's not, you know, we're not flipping a switch with this uh, source code project and expecting that everyone's just like, oh, okay. And all of the, uh, all of these source repositories come pouring in and everyone's just suddenly okay with it. There's a lot of things preventing people from wanting to share their source code. And uh, they're all pretty valid things. And we're trying to kind of help massage the the way for <laughs> dealing with some of those issues. So things like, um, you know, the video game industry um, is very, very secretive um, and much more so than like the movie industry and the music industry and stuff, even though you might not think so. Um, when you have movies, like you'll often have director's cuts where they're happy to share, you know, outtakes and maybe a marked up script and that sort of thing. And we don't have an equivalent for that. Um, in the video game industry, people don't want to show their hand. They don't want to show the sort of like messy work that went into creating it. And um, the understandable part of this is that, like I uh, alluded to earlier, if you have the source code, you can theoretically recreate the entire game. doesn't quite work that way with movies. I mean, you could have the script and you can have, you know, the set and all of that stuff, but there's, you can't just recreate a movie (laughs) <laughs> the same way you could recreate a game from source code. Right. Yeah. The the website for the Video Game Source Project lists some of these challenges, including trade secrecy, entropy, a lack of awareness. Would you say one of those challenges is the one you encounter the most or is the hardest to overcome? I think overall, the most difficult one is going to be the trade secrecy one. I think it's going to take a while to start warming people up to the idea that an institution having the source code and allowing access to, you know, a researcher or to a historian, to a student is both, you know, an okay and safe thing. And also, um, you know, and also is great. It's good for them. Um, means that people can write books about their game and um, write articles and documentaries and that sort of thing. They can get a lot more interesting history out of it and, you know, maybe even elevate their game. But the thing that is tough is that when some people hear preservation, and I totally get this, um, they want everything to be open source. And believe me, I would love everything to be open source. I would love for every company to just throw the doors wide open and be like, yep, take a look. But uh, we have to be a little more realistic and measured in our steps towards that. Um, You know, I don't expect that people are going to start, people are going to uh, get excited about the source code project and it's going to convince them to open source anything. But I do hope that it helps them understand that they may not have to open source things, but that they can give access to, you know, a specific to, to researchers and to, uh, to students and kind of let people check it out when they are studying it. I can understand how the source code or the source rather to say an Atari 2600 game might have less trade secrecy revolved around it because it's less relevant. (laughs) You know, something that's being made nowadays is going to be much more relevant, much more secretive. How can developers who have that eye to the historical eventually value of their source make sure that what they're working on today is someday going to be preserved and have that access that you described? As long as you are keeping a good archive of your source, um, that's a great first step. Not everyone even does that. Our doors are open for, you know, for dropping source code into, and we have just sort of a bucket of like, we'll figure this out later. Um, You know, 
I think we mentioned it in the article, but there's no like statute of limitations for video game source. So when even when you're talking about an Atari game, it's like that's still, you know, if someone still owns the rights to that, um, <laughs> you know, there, it never becomes a completely uh, legal thing for us to just put out there. Right. Um, and that's something we are we want to We want to have there be a path for studying this stuff. We don't want it to be like, well, we have to get the uh, express written consent of every stakeholder of everything. We want there to be um, sort of a library clause for for source code, um, just like there is for, uh, you know, for a lot of things like there's there's usually a lot of stuff that you can't access just generally, like that isn't available on Google. But if you have, uh, you know, an account with LexisNexis or something like that, you can get access to it. So that's really what we're working towards is. This makes perfect sense because as you said, you know, like an Atari 2600 game, I said it may not be relevant and that's true. But as you said, it's still copyrighted because thanks to companies like Walt Disney, copyright lasts practically forever now. And you you yep. can't just allow yourself to say, hey, I found the source code for the Atari game. Let's make it available to the world and not expect that there will be legal repercussions because a company like Activision got started on the Atari 2600 and they are going to be, you know, the big company that they are now, very protective of their copyright. They have to be right. or else they set a precedent where their copyright is no longer enforced. Right, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, to, to go back to your initial question, Yes, you can absolutely give things to us for safekeeping, and we can keep it dark for a long time until we figure out how we can legally make these things accessible. That's that's really what it comes down to. And I mean, there's, I wish I had a better answer for that, um, but that's exactly what this project is about, is that we're so far behind on making, you know, on letting people research this stuff. I mean, that's the entire reason for the Video Game History Foundation's existence, right? It's just that there's not good resources for studying video game history. And this is maybe the least well-represented of all of them um, and least figured out is there's just not legal access that anyone knows of or that, you know, that's been tested in courts, at least, for old, you know, legacy video game source code. And it's not just researchers who are benefiting. It's not just academic. I believe with your source of Aladdin, there was quite a corporate benefit to that as well. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and I, I mean, I say research is very broadly. Um, I think that anyone can be a researcher, whether you're, you know, like a, a YouTuber or, or whatever. But but yeah, I mean, when we, so uh, we had the source code for Aladdin for the Genesis in our archive, and it was actually used by uh, Disney. You know, Disney no longer had <laughs> this source code. Um, so much like they go to the Library of Congress for their uh, film nitrates when they want to remaster a movie, they had to come to the Video Game History Foundation to make this game. Um, and we actually, uh, one of our one of our staff wrote a really incredible article about uh, just kind of all the secrets that he found in the Aladdin game, um, in the Aladdin source code, you know, like cut enemies and cut functions and that sort of thing. And then those were actually restored into that uh, that game. It was a digital eclipse game that um, had, you know, it was a remaster of Aladdin, but it also had like this kind of director's cut edition that included all of this stuff that we would have never had if we had not had access to the source code. That is amazing. I will need to go buy that. I, it's available on Switch and all the other consoles, yeah, right? Yeah, I think it's on, it's definitely on Switch and PS4. I think it's on Xbox One as well. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a really incredible game that shows what exactly uh, access to source code can do. And it was also very successful. You know, it was a, a game that sold pretty well for Disney. So um, you're welcome, Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of big companies and source code, this past July, there was a big leak from Nintendo where we got to see a lot of those things that get cut and don't make it into the final game, which from one on one hand is very cool. But this was not with Nintendo's permission. This is not something that they released into the world. And so I can imagine that might make your job more difficult where companies are now going to become more locked down and more restrictive to prevent events like that from happening again. Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I've tried to stay away from talking about this too much, but that that actually is pretty much exactly what my first thought was when it happened was that this was going to make our our jobs a little more difficult. But I will say that there's a lot of enthusiasm that came out around this. There's an incredible amount of people who were very enthusiastic about looking through it and finding things um, and a lot of interest around it. And just that alone is very encouraging for me as someone, you know, who's trying to push the idea of, you know, people will be interested in this sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, they want to study it and they'll make cool content around it and that sort of thing. Um, this obviously wasn't the correct circumstances for that to happen under, but uh, it's very, very encouraging to see how much fan excitement there is about about having access to that. Well, good. We just need to get them excited about legal collaboration as well. <laughs> I'm sure they would be. It's just, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> right. There's not a there's not a lot of that right now. Well, there are some and you recently had a collaboration of your own with the famous game designer Ron Gilbert of Monkey Island and Maniac Mansion fame. I attended that event. I thought it went well. How do you feel it went? Yeah, um I really really enjoyed it. So for some background, we had the source code for uh we were gifted the source code for Monkey Island 1 and 2 and then uh the my co-director and the founder of the Video Game History Foundation, Frank Cifaldi, went through for a couple weeks straight, basically, um, just digging around in this source code and trying to find interesting things. And we sort of presented our findings in the form of a live event uh, with Ron Gilbert, where we just kind of talked about all of the things that we found within this source. So um, a lot of really cool things. Uh, you know, I mean, there were lots of cut scenes and cut rooms, cut characters, and just early art and stuff that wasn't even really meant to be a part of the game. But the coolest part to me was that all of the tools for making this game are in there as well. So during the live stream, we did a live demonstration of Scum, which is the, the programming language for those uh, old LucasArts adventure games, a live programming demo where we actually changed the game. So so Frank put in like a new scenario in the game and it did that live and you could see, you know, uh, compiled it and you could see an entire change in the game, which I thought was really, really cool and, you know, opens up all kinds of possibilities for kind of understanding how games work. The company I work for is entirely remote. So we all have different Slack channels we talk in. And one of those channels is just for video games. And a lot of us were basically like live slacking your event oh, because really? we were all fans of Monkey Island. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. 
And when Frank replaced Guybrush with Stan the Salesman, like all our jaws dropped. We were just so impressed by that. That was amazing. It was really cool. I think, and I think that was a really cool demonstration for you know some of the some of the ways that source code can be interesting and um, especially to a live audience. And it was it was great to have uh, Ron's involvement too. I mean, he'll be the first to tell you that like this was a long time. This was like thirty years ago when he made this game. While he remembers a lot of things, he doesn't necessarily remember everything, especially about the entire process of making the game. So when you have access to the source code, um, but especially when you have access to the source code and the person, you can kind of, you know, you can do a really good job of piecing together clues and figuring out, you know, what was supposed to happen here, what got cut here. And there were several instances of things that Ron forgot about. And then several instances of things where Ron was able to, you know, shine some more light on something and illuminate kind of what that meant or why that happened a little bit more. So um, really, really appreciative to him for that, for uh, being a part of that. I think that made, I think that really elevated that event a lot. Yeah, I love how active Ron remains, not only with the cave a few years ago, but also with Thimbleweed Park, which is a Kickstarter I backed. I saw him on the floor at PAX East a couple of years ago promoting his game. And not only him, but also Tim Schafer, these people who have been making the games that we've not only grown up with, but still been playing. And they're not shying from their legacy. They're very proud of it. And they're happy to do these events for the 30th anniversary of Monkey Island. I think that's great. Yeah, something about those LucasArts guys in particular, are they're really good about wanting to show people the process and, uh, and kind of celebrate the legacy of their games and stuff. I don't, it, it's interesting to me that it's like, all of those guys. Uh, we even had uh, we had like David Fox and Noah Falstein in the chat, and we didn't like, we didn't plan that, but they were <laughs> they were in the chat, also providing some more context to what was going on and answering some questions from the fans, which I thought was amazing. Now, as as you mentioned, these employees are from LucasArts originally, and as the name implies, Lucas is now owned by Disney. Does that create any sort of a additional trade secrecy or difficulty in accessing some of these resources because Disney is not the most transparent company either. Yeah, you know, we, th- we thought it might, um, but we actually did get permission from Disney to do this event. Oh, wow. And show off the source code. So <laughs> there's at least a couple of like rogue Monkey Island fans still living inside of the Disney world and, uh, <laughs> and you know, getting to make those decisions, which is awesome. That's amazing. And Perhaps because I am not as active in the history field as you are, it would not have even occurred to me that you needed to get Disney's permission. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's source. I mean, they still owned that. And if they wanted to protect it, they they could. And again, we want to find a way around that because we think that, you know, it, there's a difference between open sourcing something and letting some people dig around and learn some things and study things and write books about it. Um, but yeah, they, we do still have to get permission for some of that stuff. So a lot of people have asked, you know, uh, they would love to be able to play with the tools and be love to be able to, uh, you know, play around with the source and stuff. And again, that's, we want that too. That is a hundred percent what we want, but we also don't want to get sued by Disney. So that's, yeah, <laughs> I think that's a healthy decision. So it's, you know, it's, and again, it's still, I mean, it's still conversations we're having that that book hasn't closed. It's just not a, it hasn't ended yet. Well, good. And speaking of things not ending, do you have other events coming up that you want to tease? Uh, no, not at the moment, actually. We're kind of pivoting into fundraising mode right now, actually, because we are 
going to be uh, moving to a larger space pretty soon, which is exciting. Oh, congratulations. So you're yeah. not just expanding, you're actually picking up and moving. Yeah. And uh, I mean, not very far. We're <laughs> we're in uh, Emeryville, California right now, which is uh, just right by Oakland. And we are moving to Emeryville, California, like block or two down the street. So it's not, <laughs> we're not going far. Oh, excellent. How can people who want to support you in that endeavor do so? Um, We'll we'll have more information about that project in particular uh, pretty soon. But in general, uh, you can always donate to us. You can go to our our website, uh, gamehistory.org slash donate. Um, We have a Patreon with a couple different tiers. Um, At the $10 tier, you get to be a part of our Discord, which is a really nice, just it's full of people who love video game history and you know, we, we have a good time in there. Uh, we also, we have some other tiers that basically all just give you more access to uh, talking to Frank and I. Um, we do like a monthly hangout call with uh, our $25 backers and stuff and all of that stuff. I mean, it's it's all tax deductible. We're a 501c3. It all goes to the mission. Awesome. And full disclosure, I am one of the Patreon backers. Awesome. <laughs> And something I didn't realize when I first reached out to you a week ago, which I then discovered, is you have the Video Game History Hour. You've launched your own podcast as well. We did. We just launched it uh, just last week. And it's funny because we actually recorded the first episode like probably a month and a half ago now, but just took a while for us to kind of have all the ducks in the row to, uh, to launch. But yeah, we're really happy about it. It's really important to me as part of the mission that we are always kind of spotlighting and celebrating more good research in video game history because a it's very difficult to do good research in video game history right now that's uh (laughs) there's not a lot of great resources for studying and that's why we're trying to be that one and you know we just we want there to be more of it in the world so we want people to see it um when it happens uh some of these people, like our first guest was uh, the gaming historian on YouTube, Norm, um, and a lot of people know him, but uh, not a lot of people know all of our guests, and they all have done really great work, and so we want to be able to uh, to celebrate all of that. And, you know, we'd been wanting to do some regular content that promoted video game history and good historical research for a long time. Um, But the problem is uh, both Frank and I are very much perfectionists and we're like, well, we can't do a podcast because it would be the only thing we do. We'd just be researching for a week straight, do the podcast, research for a week straight, do the podcast. Like we'd we'd have no time to do anything else um, because we want it to be good research and not just kind of like, uh, you know, not that there's anything wrong with this because I think that there's still a lot that can be learned from just a, a more general dive into different subjects in, in video games. But, you know, we, we couldn't just like read the Wikipedia and a couple of articles and then do a podcast. It didn't feel on brand. So instead, we decided that we're bringing in some amazing expert guests who have already done a bunch of good work. And then we just kind of talk about, we you know, we dig a little bit deeper into their work and talk about the process and that sort of thing. That's amazing. Do you have any future guests you want to share with us? This episode that we're recording right now, you and me, is I think airing on the same date as our next episode goes up, which is one I'm really excited about. It's uh, uh, Ben Hansen with MinMax. He did a really awesome documentary about the origins of uh, Oregon Trail, which I think not a lot of people know. I certainly didn't know. I, I watched the video and was very... It was just a very different uh, reality of the history of that game than I thought it was. So 
Definitely worth checking that out. I saw that that documentary exists. I don't back their Patreon, but I've bookmarked that video for later watching because I'm currently in Oregon and I am a huge fan of the Apple II, which is where oh, the Oregon perfect. Trail gained a lot of its popularity. And so that that documentary is right up my alley. Yeah, it's great. And it's not super long either. I think it's like 30 minutes or something. So Perfect. Cool. And that podcast is found at gamehistory.org? Uh, yeah, our podcast, it, it's on our uh, on our website. And let's see if I could bring up the actual, like, yeah, Anchor FM slash Game History Podcast. Very good. There'll be links to all those in the show notes for this podcast at polygamer.net. So I mentioned that you have this whole other life to you that actually predates your involvement with the VGHF, which is that you and your husband, Cody, co-own Pink Gorilla, a set of two video game retail stores in Seattle, Washington. How long have you been doing that? So I have been with the company for uh, about eight and a half years now um, and have owned it for a little over four. So we've been, both of us have been with the company. He's been with the company for about 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. And we were both managers there for a really long time. Um, Took over about four and a half years ago. Uh, Former owner just basically didn't... um, didn't want to do it anymore. So, <laughs> so we took over and we've, uh, we've made some changes and have had a lot of success since then. So the store just turned 15 earlier this year. So it's, uh, yeah, I've been with, I've been with the store for over half of its life. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you said that you've made some changes as the owners in the last four and a half years. What are some of those changes? I think some of it is actually just going back to our roots a little bit. Um, when Pink Gorilla was founded, it was actually founded as Pink Godzilla and it had a pretty heavy import game focus. Um, and we sort of lost that over the years. And so one of the big things that we brought back was um, doing more in the import realm. We also just kind of gave everything a nice fresh coat of paint. We've been um, you know, doing more merchandise. We've been trying to... Uh, get more interesting items in the store, even if it means kind of going out of our way to buy collections. And even we've even bought out a couple of stores that were closing down. So I don't know if those count as big changes, but it's a, you know, it's, it's something that's time consuming and takes a lot of our focus at the very least. Cool. Now, speaking of time consuming, I used to mod my consoles, my N64, my PS1, and it was primarily to play games that didn't require, I know Japanese, which I don't. So like the early version of Mario Kart 64 or Vib Ribbon for mm-hmm. PS1. Who is the target audience for imports nowadays? Is it, is it still hard to be able to play imports? Um, you know, it's getting a lot easier, but I would say that um, I really like spreading the joy of import games to people. So even though there's probably an audience of people who come in and are already excited about import games, um, when I'm buying things, I'm actually mostly focused on the people who might not be interested or even really aware of import games. Um, So, and that especially applies to things like, I mean, you mentioned the Nintendo 64. It's a pretty easy system to modify uh, and to make region free. It's just a couple of pieces of plastic that you got to snip out. And it's something we actually offer to our customers for free to kind of encourage them to get more into that. But for systems like the Nintendo 64, I mean, you have a lot of demand for uh, the same few games and, um, sometimes kind of a a difficult time keeping those games in stock, especially if we're, you know, pricing them correctly and (laughs) not, not overcharging people for them. So um, a lot of what I import is actually just 
Japanese versions of the games that they are already familiar with and are already very popular. Um, so something like Mario Kart 64 or Super Smash Brothers 64, it's very easy for me to kind of tell, you know, even just like a, a college kid or someone who comes in, someone who has no interest in import stuff in general, if I can tell them, you know, we'll mod your system for free, this game is $15 cheaper than the US version, and we have a copy, and we don't have a copy of the US version. I've actually gotten a whole lot of people into, uh, you know, kind of dip their toes into import gaming that way. And sometimes that's all they need is they just need a copy of Super Smash Brothers. But sometimes they that's like a stepping stone for them to get more interested in other stuff that uh, maybe didn't come out here. Like, and 64 doesn't have a lot of great examples, but like Air Borders or something like that. Game Boy is probably the easiest because it's a region-free console uh, already. And there's not a lot of, I mean, there are RPGs on the Game Boy, but there's not a ton of games that require a ton of Japanese knowledge to play. Um, you know, lots of puzzle games, lots of platformers, that sort of thing. So yeah, long-winded answer, but the, <laughs> but I really I really don't think of it being a prim- primarily import loving audience when I'm trying to sell import stuff. I really am trying to kind of spread it to uh, to other people too. Cool. I remember modding my Super Nintendo so I could try Dragon Quest V, which at the time you could only play it for the Super Famicom, and I didn't know any Japanese, so I didn't <laughs> get very far. Now a lot of these classic games have been translated and released in the United States. And we also have more region free consoles like the Nintendo switch, which don't require modifying at all. Right. Would you say that all these additional translations and region free consoles are either good or bad for the import business? No, I actually think it's, it's pretty good. I don't, I don't think it's bad for, for business because I think there's always, I think it's probably very rare that if someone has the option to play an English version of Dragon Quest V or the Super Famicom version, that if they actually want to play, that they would have ever really been choosing between those two anyways. You know, they were always going to go for the one that they want to play. But sometimes people just want to buy things to collect, um, to have, and to maybe experience for a few minutes, even if they can't understand much of it because, you know, they like the art, they like the music, and they just kind of want to experience it. And so many of these games are so cheap. So many of the import games are so cheap that they can do that and feel good about it. You know, Dragon Quest V is probably like a $8 game, maybe, <laughs> you know? Wow. You know, if someone wants to actually play it, there are better ways to play it than buying the Super Famicom cartridge anyway. But um, a lot of people will buy it just to to have on their shelves or to, to check it out for a few minutes. From my own days of working at GameStop, which admittedly was now decades ago, I remember so many customers would come in want to trade these games like Madden 97, Madden 98, and being so disappointed when I would say, sorry, that's only worth 50 cents. (laughs) Now, so your store has trade-ins and you make sure that everything works before you put it back on the shelf for sale. Do people come in expecting to get rich quick and walking away disappointed like they did when I worked at GameStop? Yeah, that still happens occasionally. It's... (laughs) um... There's always going to be people who uh, don't understand that just because you bought something for $100 doesn't mean it's still worth $100. And but there's I don't know, it's there's never been so much of that that it annoys or upsets me. It's just it's just kind of one of those quirks of uh, of working retail. So um, and, you know, we try to be really transparent at the store with customers. So sometimes it's I mean, Sometimes I'll even tell people ahead of time, like if they say they're coming in with a stack of 10 360 games and, you know, they start rattling some of them off, I'll, I'll 
be transparent and say we have like 30 copies of that game and it's a game we sell for four dollars so just you know i just want to warn you and you know have you be aware that if you're coming in hoping for a whole heck of a lot of money it's that's probably not going to happen with this uh with this specific lot but i was you know there are lots of games that are worth lots of money so um I try to be transparent about that too. So if someone says they have a bunch of NES games, I'm like, well, some of them could be worth 50 cents and some of them could be worth $500. I really, (laughs) I can't say until I see them. And if somebody comes in with a rare game, do you feel morally obligated to say, hey, that's worth a lot of money. Here's what I'll give it for you. Or do you try to say like, oh, that's, that's not worth much. I'll give you 50 cents for it. Oh no, we're always, we're always very transparent. You know, in, in the, occasional cases where someone has no idea what they have and uh you know they happen to have a really expensive game i think they're usually just pleasantly surprised you know it's like oh i you know i just brought in this stack of uh of 20 games i was hoping to get like 30 bucks or whatever and you're telling me it's worth 120 or whatever that's amazing so usually it's just kind of happy surprise but no we're never uh (laughs) never trying to trick anybody (laughs) I remember attending a PAX East presentation by Chris Kohler at the time of Kotaku or Wired, one of the two. Uh, he's been at both. And he was saying, like, if you're at a flea market and you find somebody selling Earthbound for a dollar, you buy it. You don't tell them, look, yeah. I'll give you 20 bucks for it. But that's Absolutely. different because in that scenario, the well, person has the already price. decided what they're worth. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can't really think of any scenario where someone came in and handed me a $600 game and said, I want five bucks for this. I think, <laughs> and I think, I mean, just because, it, it again, it's still a different situation even then, because if you're at a flea market, you're just a one-time buyer. But as a store, you have a reputation to uphold. So even if I wanted to buy a $600 game for $5, I don't think I, I don't think there's any scenario in which I would, um, because we want to be reputable like we that's important to me that <laughs> that we are a of reputable course. um business that you know never rips anyone off so i would not pay five dollars even if someone <laughs> handed me <laughs> even if someone told me but but again it's a different scenario if you're at if you're at a flea market or a garage sale or um, a thrift store or something and you see something marked as four dollars or whatever i mean that's they set the price for that that's that's what you pay right i picked up a copy of uh, tales of destiny at Goodwill once is my best find, by the way. Everyone, everyone, I've, like hears these stories and they're like, "Oh my god, I've never had a find like that." I'm like, "Well, you're hearing my highlight." Like I've also gone to the, gone to thrift stores ten thousand times and left with nothing. But but I did one time find a Tales of Destiny for four dollars at Goodwill, and that's like a you know hundred something dollar game. Um, wow. At least at the time, it's probably more now. And yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna go up to the counter at Goodwill and tell them to charge me more. <laughs> It's goodwill. So how does Pink Gorilla decide what a game is worth? At GameStop, it's all, there's a computer database and the employees aren't making decisions. They're just going by what corporate dictates. Yeah, actually. And I like that we have that at our store because I think it, um, that flexibility can be really nice sometimes. So, you know, obviously it's fairly easy to determine if a game is valuable, you know, what the value of a game is. There's, you know, looking at sold eBay listings and price charting and all of that stuff. And there's several ways to kind of get an idea for what something is worth. Um, But to offer a price for it, I mean, 
we give employees the flexibility to base it off of a lot of different factors. Do we have 20 copies of this game already? Do people ever ask for this game? Is this an interesting game that we don't see very often? Is it in good condition? Is it you know missing a manual or something like that? Does it have Sharpie all over it? I mean, there's all of those things factor into what we what we pay for it. And, you know, it's like, it's a percentage range, like a percentage range of the total price that things normally fall in. But, you know, that gives them the, uh, the freedom to say something like, I mean, maybe it is a pretty common game. Um, well, I'll give you a good example, actually. Uh, Call of Duty Black Ops 2 on the Xbox 360. Pretty common game, actually still sells pretty well for us. And sometimes we run out of that game. So while a lot of common you know, cheap 360 games, you aren't getting more than a dollar for uh, when you sell it to us. This is uh, an exception sometimes where it's like, oh, we can pay a much higher um, margin on this. We can offer you a larger percentage of the of the price that we sell it for because this is actually a popular game that sells pretty well for us. What would you say is probably the most expensive game you sell? Uh, well, the most expensive one we've ever had was Nintendo World Championship. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that was, that's a whole, it, it's whole story. Um, but the conclusion to that story, unfortunately, we, we did inform the guy, you know, how much it goes for. And, you know, we, we paid him a very competitive and fair price that um, after informing him, like, you know, you could make several thousand more if you wanted to sell it yourself. Um, wow. But here's, you know, <laughs> here's five figures for this game, or you can, <laughs> you can do it yourself. And he, yeah, he elected to sell it to us, but <laughs> we got this, this was three days uh, or maybe even two days before we were supposed to, my husband and I were supposed to leave town for a gaming expo in Phoenix. And it was also, just a few weeks after, I don't know if you remember this, but E3 had like uh, a weird security thing on their site where you could just download the uh, contact information of anyone who was registered as media for yep. E3. Um, so my house address was on there and my phone number. Oh, and I, no. I had to change all of this stuff afterwards, but you know, we didn't, I didn't have time to do that in like a week. So I was like, well, We've already made it public that we have this game that's worth five figures. <laughs> we're oh. leaving town for a couple, we're, you know, in a couple of days. And uh, we, like, people know where we live. So, <laughs> I, yeah, we ended up selling it very quickly to the first person who, you know, could buy it from us quickly, basically, which means that we probably left money on the table, but I'm okay with it. <sighs> I'm sorry you were in that situation. As <laughs> as somebody who has attended E3, I was worried about being in that database myself, and I know a lot of my friends were. I, you would not expect E3 to dox its own media. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty crazy, but um, but yeah, it, you know, it, it worked out okay. We made some money on it. The guy who sold it to us made a lot of money. I mean, it was everyone was happy. It's just it probably could have gone better for everybody if we <laughs> if we had more time. <laughs> Was it a gray cartridge or a gold one? It was a gray one. Okay. And it wow. was a new number too. I don't know if there's a, like a, people are tracking, you know, which serial numbers have been found. So this was like a new one that hadn't been found yet. Uh, oh, hadn't wow. been tracked yet. So. N neat. 
Yeah. So speaking of challenging times, this has been a difficult year for a lot of businesses, including retail, courtesy of the COVID-19 pandemic. How has Pink Gorilla adapted to this challenge? We've been doing okay, actually. Um, The first couple months were really tough because we had to be in lockdown. Like, um, you know, stores weren't open for those first couple months at all. I didn't want to lay anyone off and I didn't want to really reduce hours or anything. So what we ended up doing was uh, my husband is a Twitch streamer as well. um, And he was just selling things uh, through his Twitch stream, kind of like home shopping network style uh, <laughs> for for a couple months and I had all of my employees and they'd come in you know in in shifts so that they weren't really around other people all day every day and I would take the midnight shift so I would be there from midnight to uh, about 9 a.m and we'd just be cleaning and testing and selling things online so that was rough um, <laughs> but ever since we've been able to open again everything's been been fairly I mean, as normal as things can be right now, you know, obviously everyone is uh, wearing masks and we're sanitizing a lot more often than that sort of thing. Um, thankfully, people still want to play video games when they're locked down and can't leave their house. So video game sales in general, I don't think have been hit too hard. In fact, it's the opposite, really. <laughs> so we've been doing okay. It's uh you know, it, it comes in waves sometimes, but we've been doing fine. Good. I've seen some scientific journals recommend people play more video games as a way to relieve stress and just be safe indoors and have something to do during these times. So I'm glad yeah. to hear that in some way, this might actually be a good thing for the industry. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly been really good for the people who sell, like not the retail stores so much, but the the companies that make games. I think all games are selling better right now <laughs> than than they would otherwise. Are you offering curbside pickup? We are, yeah. There hasn't honestly most people here haven't really taken advantage of it too much, but yeah, we are still offering that for sure. So I first saw Pink Gorilla in the documentary Not for Resale. I was in the audience for the world premiere in Somerville, oh, cool. Massachusetts a year or two ago. A lot of the stores in that documentary I think were based in Massachusetts, which might be why the film premiered there. And it ended on a little bit of a somber note. You know, like a lot of movies after the credits, they say, like, where are they now? Mm-hmm. And and this film had, well, these stores that we featured in our documentary when we shot them a year ago, now they're still alive or now some of them have not survived because a lot of games are going digital, etc. So how is the future for retail in video games? Well, uh, we're surviving another generation of... <laughs> <laughs> of uh, discs still existing. So I'm excited about that. But, you know, it's a couple different things. I think that collectors will never go away. I think there's always going to be some people who are going to enjoy having uh, old media on their shelves. And I think even for that reason, you know, you look at the success that companies like Limited Run have had, and then all of the spinoff companies that have come out of that. Obviously, that's not where like the the bulk of the money is in video games, but that I think will pretty much always exist. So there's always going to be some people interested in collecting and having physical media. But I do think that, yeah, there's, uh, there will need to be some pivoting. Um, A lot of people think that for a game store like ours, that um, collectors make up a pretty big portion of um, our customers. And it's been a while since I've done the math, but I'm pretty sure they're about 15% or less of our, of our sales go to actual game collectors um, who we mostly sell to is just 
your average video game player, you know, a college kid who walks in and just wants a new Xbox One game or, um, you know, a family that comes in and they're they're picking up a couple of new, uh, a couple of used Switch games for their kids or whatever. I mean, it's, it's really not a whole heck of a lot of collectors. So while those will always be there and always give us a reason to have physical video games, um, they're not they're not our bread and butter. Uh, so, you know, I think that the smartest thing that a lot of game stores can do right now is just have other things as well. Um, we do a lot of uh, not just import games, but import stuff. We import a lot of uh, merchandise, like, you know, cute Pokemon plushies and that sort of thing, but also cute uh, keychains that maybe have nothing to do with video games and are just good for little gifts. I'm really about I, I really like uh, pushing a lot of the import stuff personally. There's a concept in Japan, and I, I think it has a name, but I forget what it is, where whenever you go on like a little trip, even if it's somewhere within Japan, you're just going to a city over or something, you buy like a little trinket to bring back for your friends or for your family or something. And I'm, I'm trying to like make that catch on. Like I want to normalize that. I, I think that's really cool. So we offer a lot of little like $7 and under cute gifts that I think people would enjoy so that if people are uh, visiting Pink Gorilla as like a tourist destination or, you know, visiting Seattle as a tourist destination, that they're encouraged to uh, bring a little something back for the people back home. I really like that concept. So I'm trying to make it catch on, you know, and things like card games and, and that sort of thing as well. I mean, I don't think that, I think we're still a ways away from people just completely abandoning physical media and I don't think they ever will. I mean, again, records have made a big resurgence. Uh, there's always going to be people who like physical media, but uh, it may not be as easy to sustain a store on entirely that in the future. Sure. And tying back into the Video Game History Foundation, physical media is so much easier to archive and collect because yeah. when these when these online stores go away, the, the games are gone. And that's why I try to buy physical media whenever possible. Yeah, it is going to get more difficult from here. I mean, it already has been, you know, ever since like, ever since you could download games and uh, cell phone games and stuff, especially. I mean, we've already lost so much, but there's only so much. That focus is uh, not something that we do at the Video Game History Foundation. That That's for other people to figure out. And for, you know, if we become an enormous organization someday, I would love to join that fight too. But there's there's a whole lot of problems in preserving video game history. And we're doing what we can do. <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're taking the, uh, the part of video game history that we think we can do best and hoping that other people will and they are. I mean, there's there was like that flash preservation project that did really well. And there are other people fighting this fight out there, but there's a lot of fights to fight. <laughs> and speaking of having a lot of fights, I mean, I know from having worked in retail that being a manager is a full-time job. And Video Game History Foundation, as you mentioned, you could go to Game Informer with six people for five weeks and work full-time and still not be done. So how do you find time to do both of these things? <laughs> I have supportive people in my life, thankfully. Uh, you know, I don't do Pink Gorilla alone, which is really nice. I obviously have my, my husband who uh, runs the store as well. Um, and we also have an awesome general manager who keeps things running pretty smoothly, even if, you know, I have to leave town and stuff. So I don't have enough time in the world to give either of them the attention that I would like to give them, but I do my best. And would you say that being a retailer makes you a better historian or being a historian makes you a better retailer? How do these play off each other? That's a great question. Um, I think it probably does. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I've never really thought about that, to be honest. Um, I think that it's good to have kind of more perspectives on what's going on in the game industry. I mean, I suspect it would be the same if you were like a developer and someone who owned a video game store or a developer and a historian or whatever. I mean, there's any time you have more than one perspective on kind of what's going on, I think that that's, that can be useful. And I imagine that as a historian, you become familiar with what games are rare and the stories behind them. So then when you see them in your store, you're like, I know how rare this is. I know how much this is worth. I know who this is of interest to Yeah, because I, I have already done that deep dive. Yeah, for sure. There is so much else about either of these topics that we could do entire additional podcasts about, but I know this is going to be a busy week for you, not only with new podcast episodes coming out, but also... I neglected to consider when we scheduled this, you have new game consoles coming out this week. <laughs> well, thankfully, uh, I guess not thankfully. Uh, we don't have them at our stores because there's this thing called a pandemic happening right now. And so I don't even think even the big box stores are really getting them. Um, <laughs> so that means the little guys like us are really not getting them. So uh, I don't actually have to worry about the console launch this year, which is, I guess a nice thing. It would be cool to have them because I know a lot of our customers would like them, but I I don't have to deal with it much yet. I've staffed previous launches and I not as many as you, but I can imagine what a headache it is. And although it, may, it might be a missed opportunity, you know, it's not like we haven't had enough to stress about in the past week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I think it's okay. I mean, people are going to be looking for these consoles for the next probably year. I mean, even switches are still selling out (laughs) sometimes. So um, I think it's going to be a struggle for a while and we'll just, we'll try to keep in stock what we can, but it's going to be a struggle to, uh, yeah, for all of these companies to navigate this pandemic and get the allocations they want to get. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time in a busy month to talk about the Video Game History Foundation and Pink Gorilla. Remind our listeners where we can find either of them online. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, you can find the Video Game History Foundation or uh, gamehistory.org or on Twitter at gamehistoryorg. Um, Pink Gorilla is pinkgorillagames.com. Uh, we only sell merch on our online website, and I've got a really long spiel I could go into uh, on why that is, but sort of running out of time here. So yeah, we only sell merchandise on our website, although I encourage people to visit our stores when it's safe. And you can find... Pink Gorilla on Twitter at Pink Gorilla LLC. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kelfluen, and yeah, thanks for having me. Great, thank you so much. Have a great month. <laughs> thank you, you too. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Uh,